This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. Marijuana is a weed and spreads like crabgrass once it goes to sea. But three Marines armed with flamethrowers live up to the Corps' boast. They have the situation well in hand. The former evidence in drug cases was soaked in gasoline and then set afire. About 300 pounds of pot, most of it in brick form, was in the pile. Today on the Canadian Podcast, we're breaking the law. They'd been doing surveillance on me in a bunch of locations for at least six months and following me around, although they didn't quite get me. Don Briere ran weed, smoke, and gift prior to legislation. Over 30 gray area dispensaries across six provinces he was behind the first storefront in North America to sell cannabis to anyone who asked. But before that, he had a whole other career in cannabis running a massive growing operation in BC. We'll tell you that story. We're also talking to Ted Smith of Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club. They're a compassion club that's been providing medical cannabis since 2006. We got arrested a few times in the store there, like four raids within 13 months. And we just kept reopening after every raid, and we beat so far every single charge laid against us in court with one argument or another. It was their court case that led to medical edibles being widely available. But that's all after the latest pot news. With the latest pot news, I'm Jay Coburn. Cannabis stores in Saskatchewan are no longer required to ask for proof of age in store on every retail transaction as of June 5th. Shoppers who appear under 25 will still be required to show proof of age, though. This is a part of several changes brought in by the Saskatchewan Liquor and Gaming Authority, loosening requirements for cannabis retailers. In the USA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, is proposing an effective ban on Delta-8 THC products. Delta-8 THC is a compound very similar to the THC found in most cannabis plants, but is sold in states where recreational cannabis isn't yet legalized in order to skirt the law. It can be extracted from hemp or produced synthetically from CBD. 14 states have banned Delta-8 THC already, though it can still be bought online. And NFL player Le'Veon Bell has admitted to smoking cannabis before playing. The former Pittsburgh Steeler, who's now a free agent, made the confession in a recent episode of the Steel Here podcast. In 2021, the NFL made significant changes to its guidelines. Players are only required to drug test for cannabis just once at the beginning of training camp. That's the Pot News. I'm Jay Coburn. Back to Don. In Victoria, BC, there's a cannabis store called Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club. It's a nonprofit, community-owned store selling cannabis at discounted rates to patients, and it's run by this man. My name's Ted Smith, and I've been a cannabis activist for almost 28 years now, and I've done a lot of different things, but my main focus has been the Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club selling medicine to patients since January 1996. Before recreational cannabis was legal... There are medical dispensaries or compassion clubs, as they're often known. Compassion clubs have been a general term applied to medical dispensaries like ours. Starting in the 1990s down in the United States, 
people began to gather together and risk getting arrested in order to ensure that people that were sick with AIDS and cancer and such had access to medicine. And so in the United States in 1996, the Compassionate Use Act was passed. And that really kind of coined the term for compassion clubs and compassionate access. Ted has fought the government a bunch of times and won, most notably in the case that led to cannabis edibles being available for sale the same way as flour for medical purposes. And Ted continues to run into the law. Police still raid the Compassion Club for not complying with regulations. He's actually filed a lawsuit against the province of British Columbia. We can't really talk about the lawsuit until it's finished, but we can talk about his previous cases and the store itself. It started when I met a baker who made cannabis cookies and brownies and salves and such. She helped me meet a number of AIDS patients that were using her medicines, and that really convinced me of the need. I was actually living in a van at the time. I got a pager and a pamphlet and just started to do deliveries to people here in town. I'm not even from Victoria, so it was really starting from scratch. And then I uh, got an apartment, operated out of there for a few years before getting a storefront in downtown Victoria. And that was 2001. And then we got arrested a few times in the store there, like four raids within 13 months. And we just kept reopening after every raid. And we beat so far every single charge laid against us in court with one argument or another. In 2009, our bakery was raided. And my employee, Owen Smith, was charged with trafficking THC for making it in cookies. And so we fought that to the Supreme Court of Canada. In 2015, we won a unanimous decision at the Supreme Court of Canada that made edibles and extracts legal for patients. It was really the final blow in prohibition, and the government started to talk about legalization after that court case. It completely changed the way cannabis was perceived as medicine in the medical community because obviously as an edible product, it's much more efficient and easier for the medical community to get their head around than smoking a medicine. Do you sell the products or like do you provide them at a very below market value? Like you have a patient coming in for the first time. How does that work? Okay, so say a patient comes in uh, with, with a proof that they've been diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't have to say anything about cannabis to have their constitutional rights invoked. As soon as they have confirmation of a diagnosis of a serious medical problem, then they can get a membership. And so we do rely upon a medical professional to diagnose a person. There's a few different types of professionals we accept. But once they have that documentation, we do uh, intensive sign up where we go through our rules and how we work a little, but we also show them the over 80 products or 90 products that we have available to them. A lot of topicals, like 15 or 16 kinds of capsules. You know, there's a lot of options, a lot of CBD options for people. And we show them everything, whether they need it then or not, because it's A, their introduction to the club, and they may need it later, but they also may know somebody else that would need one of our products that they didn't think of before, like suppositories, for example, isn't something that people typically come in for, but we've got six different types of suppositories that are very medicinal and a lot of CBD suppositories. So, you know, it can open people's eyes up to the possibilities in the sign up. But yeah, once they sign up, then they can purchase. 
We do sell everything that we have here. We give away a little bit in some donation programs, but we typically can't afford that much because we keep our prices as close to cost as we can, as opposed to most businesses that will mark it up 50% or greater. Our markup rate is typically 25 to 30%, just basically enough to keep the doors open. We do our very best to make everything we sell as affordable as possible. And part of how we do that is actually we have our own kitchen. So we make our own capsules and cookies and topicals and stuff in-house. So we're not you know, paying people that are trying to profit off it along the way. We don't make everything in-house, but as much as possible. I'm curious about the case that you took all the way to the Supreme Court and you legalized the edibles. Can you tell me more about that? I was really keen to challenge those laws because in the earlier raids in the club, I had learned that while cannabis marijuana was made illegal, THC, in fact, remained illegal and cannabis resin was illegal as well, which seemed absurd. And so I was anxious to challenge those laws. And so when Owen was arrested in 2009, for me, I saw it as a huge opportunity for us. So I picked Dr. David Pate as our expert witness. He's done a lot of work for large companies like JW Pharmaceuticals. He's essentially as much of a witness for Health Canada as he is us with all the work he's done in laboratories. And so he was able to do a very convincing job in front of the judge that stood to the Supreme Court of Canada, where he was saying things like making cannabis legal, but THC illegal would be like making maple tree legal. But if a leaf fell off, then somehow that leaf would be illegal. And God forbid you made maple syrup because that's like pure maple. It just helped the judge understand how absurd it was. There's a lot of impacts along the way. So when we won our lower court decision in 2012, the police took the decision to the Canada Revenue Agency and said, look, we're not going to be able to arrest this guy anymore, but you should go get your taxes. And so when it came out into the local newspaper that I was now paying my taxes and being fully compliant with Revenue Canada, and that that seemed to be okay with the authorities as long as I was only selling for medical purposes. Well, that was actually the green light on people opening up dispensaries here in Victoria and Vancouver and other parts of the country because it was clear that there was this gap in law that Health Canada wasn't providing access to. When the city of Vancouver and Victoria started to license dispensaries for medical purposes, one of the main reasons they cited was our ongoing court case, even though we hadn't got to the Supreme Court of Canada yet. It was very clear that there was a huge gap in Health Canada's programs that needed to be filled. The explosion in dispensaries was in large part because of the case that was developing starting in 2012. By the time we got to the Supreme Court of Canada in 2015, there were hundreds of dispensaries across Canada that were supplying all of these products with the protection of the courts. It was very fascinating though, getting in front of the Supreme Justices in Ottawa to hear Health Canada try and argue that smoking was the only safe, effective way to use cannabis as medicine. They were just about laughed out of the courtroom by these judges. The last one comment was from the Chief Justice who said something to the effect of, why don't you just stick with points that are relevant and just shut the crown down? That 
had a huge impact because not only did it impact the medical marijuana community and patients and doctors started to look at the full range of options available, but in Bay Street in Toronto, they started to crunch the numbers and they're like, there's all these value added products to cannabis. It's not just budget smoke. You can make all these things out of it. There's a huge potential industry there, not just for medical patients, but recreational. And so it really was not only you know, one of the last straws in the ability to enforce the law, but it also really changed a lot of people's minds as to how cannabis can be used and what the opportunities were as a result of that. That was Ted Smith, founder of Victoria Cannabis Buyers Club. If you were in Vancouver in the early 2000s, you might remember this man. My name is Don Briere. I've been a grower for 11 years. I made the news when they busted me because we had such a large grow up. Don has made the news more than just once. Famously, when he opened the first non-medical cannabis storefront in North America, back in 2004, 14 years before legislation. Meanwhile, a Vancouver story is creating a huge controversy tonight by selling marijuana over the counter to anyone who walks in and wants to buy some. The Decline Cafe on Commercial Drive. There's so much to tell about Don's life and connection to cannabis that we're splitting the story into two parts. We'll tell the story of Dekine, smoke and beverage, in the next episode. He opened the store while still on parole for another crime, though. We had over 30 operations, and basically, we had a clip every day. So we were producing a lot of cannabis. In the late 80s and 90s, Don Brier was one of the biggest growers in B.C. This is the story of those years. It started when he was a teenager. We got a hold of somebody's older brother, and they gave us a little wooden matchbox full of cannabis. Obviously, we don't endorse underage consumption of cannabis. That's still illegal, but this is what Don was up to. There were about maybe three or four joints in there, and we sat by the park, and we rolled some up and smoked it. And it was popping and crackling because it was full of seeds and everything else. It was amazing. We really liked it. You know, it was hard to get. We didn't get much of it. Don's been smoking weed for over 50 years, but he didn't immediately get into the industry, if you could call it that at the time. He started out as a logger and a steel worker before a motorcycle accident put an end to those careers. So he got into the alcohol industry. I was involved in that for 10 years, and it was something that, I didn't like doing. It was a night shift thing and just on and on. So I got into cannabis because I've been consuming cannabis for many years, right? And I just started with a couple of light bulbs in my friend's basement growing some weed. It was a learning process and there wasn't a lot of ways to find out how to grow. There were some books around, so we got a hold of them. We fumbled our way through there and just started growing weed. We were reasonably successful. People wanted more and more. Don's fledgling business quickly outgrew his friend's basement. They started picking up more properties with their profits. Soon they were growing pot in detached houses, basements, and warehouses all around southern British Columbia. The operation grew in size and in numbers. After about six weeks, it started to look like it's harvest time. And then after that, basically you, you have a clip crew come in, usually eight to ten people, and they would just start chopping down the crop. It'd take maybe eight, ten hours. 
Don says that at their peak, the operation had two clip crews working full-time across 30 locations, with two people staffing each location full-time. In the end, we were producing about two tons of weed per year. So there was a lot of cannabis. And as they grew, so did the industry. Don says his operation was where a bunch of other growers started their illicit careers. We would hire people, right? And as people came in to do the work, they also wanted to become involved in the industry. And after a while, holy smokes, it was like so many people growing weed. These operations didn't just need people, though. They were hungry for electricity. If you walked into a good grow, you had what they call flip-flop, where you had 16 lights, eight on one side, and then as soon as the lights went off for a 12-hour darkness period, that's how you traded your cannabis, the other side flipped on automatically, right? And so you're running 16 lights. You had some beds in there, you had the lights set up, you had fans set up, maybe air conditioning in the summertime, a little bit of heat in the wintertime. I think the largest grow we had was 120 lights. So Don was running all these grow-ups, guzzling power and stinking of cannabis, all illegally. He and his crew had to find ways to cover up their operation. It was kind of a game of cat and mouse with the police and the power company. If you had a hydro bill and it was this high, and all of a sudden the hydro bill went way up there and along, you're giving yourself away. So the hydro bill was one giveaway, and the police had infrared sensors that could detect the lights even when the curtains were drawn. They needed a warrant to point at the house, though, so they would point it at the power cable, and that would be glowing bright white with all the additional power. So Don's crew would bypass the hydrometer, not to save money, but to avoid getting caught. Pretty soon, though, the power company figured out people were doing this, and they figured out how to spot it. Don had someone watching for someone from the power company at each location. When they spotted them coming, they had a solution. We had electronic magnetic contact switch, and all you had to do is hit the switch, and the power to the grow up would shut off completely, right? Because, you know, the meter's here, and then it goes to the house, but you cut the pipe up here, and you put a tap in, and this is called a hot tap, right? It's kind of dangerous. Obviously, don't do this at home. Even if you wanted to try, this was in the 1990s. We're pretty sure the power company has figured out ways to catch you. Then there was the other giveaway, the smell. They had a few ways to get rid of that. Some you might expect, like air purifiers. Others are less obvious. In one location, they hired a carpenter. There was a fairly large building, and you had to roll up doors. We put up a wall in between the larger part of the building. And we had a carpenter come in there and he was building cedar boxes and all kinds of stuff. And instead of him renting a place off us, we actually paid him to come in and build boxes to sell just for the smell of the cedar and look like it was a legitimate operation. That one definitely worked, along with some other measures because someone else got raided in the same building. The police left their cedar-scented unit alone. For a while, Don was living a decent life. Nothing too fancy. He had a pretty nice house, a couple of cars, and a decent amount of money. He also had four blue vans. Why? Because Don was starting to watch his back for the police. By the time I bought the third van, my wife said to me, why don't you get a different color van? And I said, well, because, you know, it looks like I got the same van. And believe it or not, on my fourth blue van, somebody came up and he says, wow, you're still driving that old blue van, are you? Don was running a huge operation manufacturing an illegal product. 
he was right to be worried. There's a saying, you aren't really paranoid if they're really out to get you. Well, Dom Briere was not paranoid. They'd been doing surveillance on me in a bunch of locations for at least six months and following me around, although they didn't quite get me, but I would kind of slow down for a yellow light. And then just at the last second, I'd put my foot on the gas and go through so there was nobody behind me. And they would use their own vehicles, their personal vehicles. And the guy that was behind me, he'd be called the eye. And they would swap off. The one guy would turn left and the other guy would come up behind me. And Well, not right behind me, but, you know, be following me, maybe even a car behind, right? And so they would use six, seven cars, and they would parallel follow you if there was square. But Surrey had Fraser Highway, which angles through there and lots of dead ends all over the place. So they had a really, really, really hard time following me. But that's what they were doing. In 1999, 11 years after Don planted that first seed in his friend's basement, the police finally caught up with him. Oh, it went down pretty hard, yeah. Don was in one of his warehouses, not one of the big grow-ups. This was more like research and development. I had a false store going in there to go into the other warehouse where I was doing genetic engineering and all. I never went into that one from the front. We just went into the one that was beside it, right? That's where we put all the equipment together and the boards for the flip-flops. And so one morning, Don was sitting in the office of his 2,000-square-foot warehouse. Between him and the main warehouse space was one-way glass only transparent from the office and a door. He was paying a contractor when it happened. I'm sitting there, I'm just handing him the $5,000 and $50 bills, right? And I see this guy and he leans over and I can see him leaning over and he's like this, banging on the glass door. And I'm like, what the F? And then I look and right in front of my truck, there's this young guy, right? It's like he's running on the spot and I'm looking at his office. It looks like we're getting raided. And then I told the other guys to say, hey, Jim, I said, crack the door open. And so he opened the door and, man, they just came in, like guns up in the air, and they had got a clamas on, all bullshit. And it was like up against the wall, and holy f- it was something else, right? Don says they were taken to a lockup in Surrey. They kept us in throughout the weekend. We were in front of a justice of the peace, and the justice of the peace said, no, we're not letting these guys out, so they kept us in until we went to court. There wasn't a whole load of cannabis in the warehouse, but there was more than enough. They used my forklift to load all the shit up, and then they took my forklift. <laughs> Later on, when I was rearrested, I seen my forklift in the basement of the police RCMP station there. They kept my forklift there and they were using it for whatever, I don't know. But it's pretty funny. Well, not that funny. Don was sentenced to five years in prison. He served a third of that before he got out on parole. And that's where we'll pick up the story next month. In the next episode of the Canadian Podcast, the next stage of Don Briere's, um career. We didn't understand why they would be going after us when there was so much other stuff out there. We were just peaceful pot people, really. Dekine Smoke and Beverage, the first storefront in North America to sell cannabis to anyone who asked. I hope you can join us for the next episode of the Canadian Podcast. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. And while you wait for the next episode, be sure to go to westernbuzz.ca. 
The Canadian Podcast is an Everything Podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the podcast team or our partners. This show is intended for a 19-plus audience. Thanks to our team, creative director Cliff Dumas, showrunner Kevin Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, and our sound engineer is John Massacar. I'm Don Schaefer. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Podcast, the authority on cannabis in Canada. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.